guys, welcome to the More Than Mom podcast. I'm your host, MJ Cash, and your new mom BFF. And guess what? You get me without any awkward playground small talk. On this podcast, we'll be covering everything we possibly can to help you thrive in all of your roles, not just as mother, but as wife, woman, and individual with your own passions and dreams. I hope that you'll choose to continue along this journey with us as we all begin to figure out how to become more than mom. What's up, everyone? Good morning and welcome to the More Than Mom podcast. This has been a crazy, crazy week. As all of you guys know, we are in the middle of lockdown. We are in social distancing, we are in quarantine, and um, we are not allowed to socialize with any of our friends or family. So it's a pretty crazy time. Um, The coronavirus is going around and we're doing the absolute best we can to spread out uh, the contraction of the disease, so that of the illness so that um, hospitals can do their best to have the room and and the equipment needed for each patient. And I gotta say, I don't think any of us ever expected to live through something like this, um, for this to happen in our lifetime. And it's it's really fascinating to be alive while something like this is going on. I want to talk about the podcast a little bit as far as this COVID-19 time period goes with um, social distancing and and isolation. So first of all, you know, I am a mom first and a business owner and and podcast host second. So with that, most of my time that I am able to dedicate to this is when the kids are in school, which they are currently not in school. So what that means is if you listen closely here, maybe you don't have to listen closely at all. You can just hear it. There's stuff happening in the background because my mics pick up my household movement. So my daughter's awake right now. She's watching some TV while she eats her breakfast. My husband's making coffee and all those things are happening while I'm recording this. And there's no way for me to escape it in order to make it um, quiet while I record. So this is going to be something new for us to navigate. I don't exactly know how we're going to approach it moving forward. Um, I do know that this specific interview today is on Skype. My guest is up in New York and you can tell by the quality of the audio that it's over Skype and over the internet. It's not as clear as this introduction, which is just on my mic plugged into my computer. And I think that you can go ahead and expect many of the interviews going forward being like this until things settle down a little bit. I can't, in good conscience, ask someone to come into our house and sit down with an interview with me, even the locals, due to the fact that my husband's going out every single day to um, serve our community with his job. And every single day is a new opportunity for him to become exposed to coronavirus. So any any day we could get exposed to it as a family. And because of that, we have to be extra, extra, extra cautious to make sure that we're not spreading it any further. So with that said, I don't know exactly what things are going to look like going forward here. I'm going to do my absolute best to get you a podcast every single week, whether it's just me or a guest. Um, we'll kind of figure it out as we go. If you guys have ideas for what you'd like me to talk about, that's, um, that's welcomed as well because some of the things I had planned will not really work due to the coronavirus um, and due to the fact that I really want them to be in person because they can be. And um, we'll just kind of, you know, give each other grace this period. Is that fair? There's my sweet baby girl. So this episode's all about endometriosis. And I have to say, going into this, I actually knew 
next to nothing about it. I mean, literally the only thing I knew about endometriosis is that it can, it, that it, it um, affects women and that it can cause infertility. Those are the only things I knew about it. That's it. And while I have loved every single episode and every single interview I've had so far on this show, I have to say, I think this one was the one that for me was like the most fascinating. I mean, I was just, because I knew nothing about it and Maria is so knowledgeable, I was just like absorbing all the information, like give me all of it. And it was all so interesting. I have not been diagnosed with endometriosis myself. I don't think I have it. I've never been tested for it, but I've never had severe symptoms like the ones that she covers in this. But many, many, many women do have endometriosis and don't know it. And because of that, I think this is such a crucial episode for everyone to tune into. The crazy thing about it is that, and I've experienced this in my own life, there are symptoms of endometriosis that are completely intolerable. And yet as women, we have always been told to just tolerate them because those are just the cards that we were dealt. Like you have really extreme symptoms that are hard to live with, but well, some women get it more severe than others. And unfortunately, it's just the hand that you were dealt. So you're going to have to live with it. That's That's the conversation that we have been taught. That is the advice that we have been given. And the fact of the matter is, is that many of those things, in fact, I would dare say all of those things are not things that are unsolvable. You, you don't have to live with it. In fact, you there are solutions out there for figuring out and addressing the problem, but you have to figure out first what it is that's causing it. And so that's why if you can listen to this episode and you hear some of your own story within Maria's, it might give you this diagnosis or at least this path to explore that you might not have ever known about before. And it could be life-changing for you like it has been for Maria. In fact, my mom had endometriosis. I talked about it on here. And we had never really talked about it before. Because isn't that what we're supposed to do with women's health concerns and health issues is that like we just don't talk about it. These subjects are very taboo. They're very taboo. And we feel like we're not supposed to talk about these kinds of things. But after this interview... I decided to give my mom a call and tell her about it, and she shared with me some incredible details of her endometriosis journey, and it really opened up my eyes to understanding some of the things that my mom went through in her, in her um, not just youth, but much of adulthood. I mean, it's incredible to hear these stories from someone as close to me as my mother that I didn't know about before, and to hear how hard that must have been to navigate that and to have to live with those symptoms for so long. It just gives me such an appreciation for like where she's been as I get to know more and more about it. And that is what is so cool about this is that first of all, it might open you up to something for you 
to dig deeper into and to look further into, further investigate for yourself. But it also might open up conversations with friends, with family, with loved ones that we beforehand thought were just things that we weren't supposed to talk about. And all of a sudden, guys, we are giving you permission to talk about them, share them, share your story, share your journey. It is important that women's health issues get talked about and become less taboo and that people understand that it's not like, ooh, that's gross. You have a period. No, guys, of course not. These things have to become less taboo. And Marie and I have an incredible conversation. She digs deep into endometriosis and what it, look, what it can look like. It looks different for every woman, but she gives a very good general description and, and kind of covers many of, of the basics with it. So you can kind of see if, if you fall into any of those categories. And then we also talk about a lot about women's health and where we hope it goes in the future on these taboo subjects. And so with that, I, I so look forward to you hearing this episode. Uh, if you want to be more in on the journey with what the heck we're going to do during the, <laughs> the coronavirus for this podcast, head over to the Instagram page and give me a follow. It's at Mrs. MJ Cash. And uh, you can be tied into to what's going to be going on. But we'll figure that out as we go, as, as the day comes. Um, because recording becomes very challenging, obviously. But then ed- finding the time to edit becomes very challenging, too. Because I'm also uh, wrestling a bunch of kids around all day. So, But with that being said, thoroughly enjoy this episode. This is... Maria Nardecchia. All right. Um, this is always funny because I transition into like a podcast conversation, but. We'll make it work. (laughs) All right. I'm sitting down today with Maria Nardecchia and we are talking over Skype, which is my second time doing this. It's not having, not having someone here in my living room with me, but Maria, we met at one of my husband's best friend's weddings and you know, his wife very well. Yep. Vicky. Yes. You guys grew up together, went to college together. What's the story there? We actually met in Spain. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. We met in Spain during college and we were both interning for the same company, but in Spain for different reasons. Yeah. And we met up and drank sangria all night and haven't missed a beat since. I feel like it's the most appropriate thing and says it's the most appropriate thing that my that question would be that you met her in a different country because that is like my main connection to you is that you love to travel. Yes. Yep. When we met at their wedding, we spent pretty much the whole evening talking about Italy, our love of Italy and traveling. You and your husband were about to go. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was amazing. And you gave us, we were just talking about this. You gave us the best recommendation for a a wine tasting experience in our favorite place on earth, which is the Cinque Terre. And it it lived up to every expectation uh, that you you talked it up to have. So that was awesome. Um, And you reached out to me. We follow each since then. We've been Facebook friends. And you reached out to me and knew kind of the work that I was doing with just trying to create a space for women to to have a voice. And you have a story that's really important for a lot of women to know and understand. And um, 
first of all, thank you for doing that. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for being willing to tell your story. Because uh, I do think, I do think it's going to be super important for a lot of women. And you'll know that even better than I do because I haven't been through it myself. But can you give us first, just so the listeners can kind of understand who you are, just some of your background, where you're from, what you're up to nowadays, that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, firstly, thank you for having me on this show. So I'm Maria. I'm from upstate New York, Rochester, New York, born and raised, big Italian family, love to travel. I went to SUNY Brockport and studied international business. So traveling has kind of always been a, a pretty big part of me. Um, I'm currently a nanny. I've been with a family for close to five years now. Um, but I also still do some consulting marketing work on the side just to to stay within the within the industry a bit. I've played competitive sports my whole life. I still play soccer. I live with my boyfriend, long-term boyfriend. We've been together about five years now. Yeah. So we have a, a pit lab dog, Prince. That's so, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Do you get to ever travel with the family that you nanny for? No, no. So not for them, but I have traveled in the past with, with a nanny okay. family, which is a really cool perk. <laughs> I was going to say, that would be a great yeah. like meetup of your two loves. Yes, yeah. right, right. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. I nannied for a family for a while and they go on Disney cruises like often. And there was like a small period of time they were about to go on one and they were considering taking me and I was like, ooh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sweet perk, right? Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so last year, I think it was last year, you were diagnosed with endometriosis. Mm-hmm. Correct. Can you walk us through, I know you have a really, really long journey to reaching that diagnosis. Can you walk us through that story? Sure. Happy. So just probably to start off with a quick explanation of what endometriosis even is, because when people hear that word, they're typically like, excuse me, like, what does that even mean? Uh, So endometriosis is, it's a very complex disease. It is where tissue that is similar to the uterine lining somehow manages to grow in other areas of your body. Mm -hmm. So it is not the same, you know, they're not, it's not the same genetic makeup that is your uterine lining. It's something similar to it. Okay. Okay. So with that said, my journey began, I mean, honestly, right when I got my period, I got my period when I was 12 years old, I was going into sixth grade. And so that, I would say just based on other friends, you know, you talk to girls and whatnot when everybody got their period. Um, I think that mine was relatively on the younger side compared Mm -hmm. to people that I know. And right off the bat, I've always just had bad periods. You know, it's not the bad in the sense where, you know, like you get a little bit of cramping, not feeling well, you take some Advil, maybe you'll feel better. Mine was like, debilitating to the point where I was missing school. I was missing social activities. Mm. As I'd mentioned, I was part of competitive sports. And so when my period would come around in high school and there was a game day, I would kind of have no choice but to lay, for example, in the nurse's office, in the AD's office, just so that I was in school for attendance purposes so that I could participate in my sports. Right. And it got to be that kind of thing. So every month, you know, either my mom was writing me a note or I was laying in the nurse's office because my cramps were, there's no other word but debilitating. Yeah. Um, So that went on, you know, still continues to go on, but that went on until um, I started to take birth control when I was about, you know, when I was like 18, 19 years old. 
And leading up to that is when it started to get really bad, when other symptoms starting to started to pop up. It would it's bizarre. You know, I I think about it and I look back on it with my parents now and we had no idea that this could have even been related to. Right. Nobody knew what it was related to. But what would happen is that like one day every month I would get this dull pain. It would be just like located just deep inside my belly button, like right back into the middle of my stomach. And I would be like, mom, dad, like it's going to happen. It's going to happen tonight. I already know it. I feel it. And they're like, okay, let's get prepared. My mom would stay up with me all night and it was, it's terrible. I would get, I would wake up in the middle of the night, get violently ill to the point of just dehydration, couldn't do anything. I would fall asleep on the bathroom floor because I had to be so close to the toilet to either puke or go to the bathroom. Right. Wake up, you know, early the next morning and it, it would be gone. Um, no doctor knew what was happening. I talked to my, you know, my primary care doctor, talked to my OB doctor, um, my primary care doctor. She, at that point, she had kind of given us the advice to go to the emergency room when this started to happen because she wanted to take, she wanted them to take tests while it was happening. Mm-hmm. She wanted x-rays. She wanted ultrasounds. She wanted, you know, to get my vitals, blood. She wanted to know what was going on with my body when these quote unquote attacks were happening. So we did that. And also to get some pain medicine because I was in so much pain that I was, I was hysterical. You know, there was nothing that we could do to even touch this. So we did that for, it was like over a year that we started doing that. And every single time that we went to the ER, they would run every single test known to mankind and they all came back normal. Nothing, nothing um, indicated that there was an issue. So it was kind of just like a, okay, you say you're in pain, but everything's fine. Like, you know, your tests are, your blood work is fine. Uh, we did an x-ray. There's nothing happening in there. Your appendix isn't bursting. Right. You're not having an allergic reaction. All these different things. You know, I was put through the ringer. I was sent to GI specialists because they started to think that I had to do with something with my GI. So at age 19, I had uh, colonoscopy. I had endoscopy. I had a barium follow through. I had external ultrasounds. I had internal ultrasounds. The works. Mm-hmm. Everything. And no, out of all those doctors that I saw between about, it was like a year and a half, not a single doctor even suggested the word endometriosis. Yeah. So, you know, that leads us up to like 19 and 20. I, 18 and 19, excuse me. So I go on birth control at that point because my OBGYN had said that that should help with some of my cramping. Um, And I, I've heard quite a few girls do go on the pill for that reason as well. Yeah. So my attacks went away. Gone. Didn't have another one. Haven't had another one. Fast forward to when I was about 23 years old. So I'm 28 right now. So about five years ago. Yeah. I started to get really bad GI symptoms while I was on my period. For example, the best way to explain what my symptom is, and it's graphic, but it, you know, it, it needs to be talked about, is it would feel like when I was on my period, um, I would get cramps as if it felt like somebody was stabbing a knife right up my butt, mm-hmm. you know, nice and glamorous. <laughs> yep. You know, so when people talk about having period pain, that's not normal. You right. know, that kind of pain is not something that's normal, but we're told it is, you know, like we're told, 
or I should say I was told that, you know, I was just unlucky. Right. Everybody yep. has period pain. You just happen to have really bad period pain. You know, it, it's unfortunate, but it is, you know, it is what it is. It's a part of life. It's a part of being a woman. So yes. that was kind of, that, that was led up to the point where I was 23 and then I started to get really bad GI symptoms. Finally, I mean, that, as I said, that was five years ago. It took me until I was 28 on face or on Instagram following celebrity Julianne Huff uh, for her to be doing some type of partnership with like endometriosis foundation of America of some sort for me to kind of really, for the first time, hear the word endometriosis started watching these videos, watching these, you know, campaigns that she was a part of. And I was like, Oh my gosh, wait for the first time that I'm understanding like this, this is something that I might have. Why am I just finding out about this for the first time. Why wasn't this taught in, in health class? Why didn't any of my doctors bring this up? Why am I learning about this through Julian Hoff on Instagram? So that was about June, June of 2019, July of 2019. I got an, uh, an appointment with my OBGYN. I walk in there and I was like, look, I think that I have this disease. I started telling her about my symptoms again. I mean, she's my, she's been my OB for years. She knows about them. She looks at me and she goes, oh my gosh, those are textbook symptoms. So here's what we're going to do. Immediately wants to put me on this drug. There's a new drug, new groundbreaking drug called Oralissa. Okay. And basically what this drug does is it puts the female body into a chemical menopause. So at age 28, she wanted me to go, she wanted me to take this drug that would put my body into menopause. And the reasoning behind this is because endometriosis is an estrogen fed disease. Mm -hmm. So therefore, in order to stay alive, it needs estrogen. So the idea behind this drug is that if you cut off the estrogen supply, you go into menopause, the disease will starve and die. Like easy peasy, done. It's so much more than that. This right. disease, first off, it puts somebody who's not supposed to be in menopause into menopause. That causes severe side effects, bone issues, heart issues, yeah. night sweats. Think of all the different things that women go through during menopause, but now you're putting this prematurely into somebody who, whose body is not ready to do it. Right. So right away, her first suggestion was that. I didn't, I had not heard of it. I wanted to do some more research on it. Um, I had kind of known that endometriosis, you know, leading up to my appointment, I'd done so much research. I knew that surgery was most likely going to be needed. So I asked her, you know, can we just, can we do surgery? Can we just get in there? Can you confirm it? Because endometriosis can't be confirmed unless there is a sample taken and it's sent to pathology and it comes back as either yes or no identified as endometriosis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I thought about it. I got back to her and I was like, I do not want to take this drug. I do want to do surgery. What are the steps in the surgery? She begins telling me about, you know, how she'll go in there. It's, it's, um, it would be laparoscopic. So through the belly button and then a few other incision points throughout the abdomen, there is a camera that goes in there. It, they pump you full of some gas so that your stomach is kind of tented so that they can see in there behind organs, this and that. And then she starts to tell me that she would then do ablation surgery. So there's two types of surgery when it comes to endometriosis. There's ablation, which 
you see something and you burn it off. So you burn it right at the surface and that's that. And then mm-hmm. there's excision surgery, which you kind of go in and you dig it out. You know, they say kind of think of it like an iceberg. You see the tip of it, but there's so much more underneath. Okay. So there's two, you know, two two different approaches to an endometriosis surgery. She was talking about ablation. Hadn't done too much research about that. So we had scheduled the surgery for beginning of September, left it at that. I kept doing more research because I just, something wasn't sitting right with me. Um, I felt like, you know, based on all the research that I was doing, I was like, this, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem like the best course of action. And I was right. I started to do so much research. Um, the recurrence rate of endometriosis when treated with ablation is astronomical. You're, oh, almost wow. you're almost guaranteed to need more surgeries because it grows back and it grows right. back with vengeance. You know, it's, it's, it's angry. It's, it's in there and it's going to continue to implant itself even deeper. Hmm. So I call her back and I'm like, you know what? I not, I'm, I'm not prepared to, you know, to undergo this kind of surgery, knowing that I'm going to need another one. I want to find a specialist. She was super supportive. She understood. And I then found something on Facebook actually called Nancy's Nook. And this, this Facebook group has, it's honestly changed my life. It has changed my life. It has changed so many women's life in the sense that this woman, Nancy Peterson, she is a retired RN. She explains her whole story on, on the Facebook group, but basically she had very poor treatment in the sense of um, once she was quote unquote diagnosed with endometriosis, you know, botched surgeries and went through the ringer with all these different things. And she was like, I need to do more. Like more needs to be done for the women. I want to, she, she basically took it on herself and started this amazing platform where she uploads just resources and information and guidelines, different kind of lists of surgeons that are are good in New York, surgeons that are good in California, things like that. Right. So I was doing a ton of research on this Facebook group um, and I found that there was surprisingly an excision specialist located in Buffalo, which is only about an hour from me. So I called his office and I was like, okay, you know, I want a consultation. I think I might have endometriosis. And I went in for the consult. He did, he listened to my whole story, which first off, I have found that it's, that's hard to find with everything that I've gone through. I feel not many people have fully sat down and been like, tell me your story from the beginning. I want to hear everything. And then, so he listened to my story, listened to all the symptoms that I went through, all of the just you know, the mistreatment that happened with all my ER visits and all my specialists. He did a quick pelvic exam and he was like, all right, Maria, I agree. Like, let's do surgery. Yeah, I think that you have it. So we scheduled that for beginning of January this year. So January 3rd, 2020, I had my first ever surgery and it was excision surgery. Went in, I wasn't, I was very surprised that I was not nervous whatsoever. I was expecting to be um, scared, you know, especially for the fact that this is my first surgery. You know, I know that it could very well be affecting a lot of my different body parts just based on my symptoms, but I was not scared. The I thing feel that like I was it's probably scared. like you've gone through these horrible symptoms your whole life. Mm-hmm. And even though surgery can be scary, the idea that it could solve these issues for you is like, 
overriding any fear that you could possibly have about it. Like that, I, I get that for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, I'm finally in a position where I'm going to be helped. You know, I'm with a specialist. He's one of the best. It's, you know, I'm, I'm on my way to, to being pain-free. And the thing that really worried me the most, and this was the first thing that I had asked when I woke up from after being, you know, on anesthesia is, did they find it? Did they find endometriosis? You know, and so at that point, I was with my mom and my boyfriend in the like the recovery room. And they were like, yes, yep, they did. They found stage four. So endometriosis, there's four stages, um, four being the most complex. You know, it's it's infiltrated itself into into your tissue in order for it to be stage four. It also has to be outside of your reproductive system. Hmm. So my surgeon found my stage four endometriosis on the entire back wall of my uterus, the back of my cervix, on my bowels and on my bladder. My bowels were actually adhered to the back of my uterus with endometrial tissue and um, implants. So that explains all of the pain that I would get while I was on my period. Anytime that I would bowel movement, anytime that I would, you know, my intestines were passing gas, I would get these just shoots of pain. Um, and it makes sense. My body parts were not where they were supposed to be and they were attached to each other. So he did the best that he could with the resources that he has, you know, in this small hospital. Um, but unfortunately it's, it wasn't enough for how complex my case was. And so a lot of the disease, most of the disease was left behind. Um, he was able to clean up and excise tissue from my bladder and he was able to put my bowels back where they belong. So he was able to detach it from my uterus but all the other disease is still there. Came out of surgery and what do you know? He wants me to take Oralissa. He tells me that there is not a surgeon that, you know, a surgeon will say that they can help me, but it's too risky. That these body parts are soft tissue, risk of being punctured. You know, when you're dealing with your bowels, it's, it, that can be a very scary situation because right. if that ruptures or if that punctures, you know, you can immediately get an infection, you know, you can have to get a bowel resection, all these different things. So he immediately was like, I want you to take Oralissa. Starts putting me, you know, giving me the whole spiel about how amazing this drug is and how it has helped so many women and this and that. And at this point I'd already done so much more research about this and I was dead set on not taking it. I was like, I am absolutely not putting this drug into my body. Um, and I told him, you know, and, and my post-op appointment to his face, I was like, I'm not doing this. It is, it's terrible, but okay. So Oralissa is a pill form of a drug called Lupron, which is an injection form. Lupron has been around for years. Women have been getting shots of Lupron for their endometriosis for years. Similar side, it puts you at the sim- similar side effects as what I was explaining with Oralissa. The reason that Lupron was created was to help men with prostate cancer. That's the reason that this drug was created. Yeah. So essentially, it is either an injection form or a pill form of chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And they're administering this to women who trust their doctors and trust that they're doing what's in the best interest for them. They're taking this this medicine and are totally reaping the the misbenefits of of this drug and how horrible this drug is. So I told them, you know, like, no, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to look at other options. I'm going to get a second opinion. Towards the end of that conversation, he, he even himself, he was like, yeah, this drug is, this is a, this is a dirty drug. 
quote unquote. He literally said, this is a wow. dirty drug. Okay. So here I am, somebody who's been doing so much research. And that's just how I am. You know, I'm the kind of person where it's like, if there's something that I'm interested about or something that affects me, I want to dive into it. I want to know the ins and the outs. I want to be educated enough so that I can make proper decisions about it. So when it comes to my healthcare, like I'm, I'm over the top about it. I want, I'm, I want to know exactly what's happening, what my options are, who's the best person to take care of it. You know, so this, this was no exception. I was ready. I was prepared. I had notes. I had, um, you know, my own thought processes about how, you know, how I want to move forward with this. And it wasn't involving him anymore, you know. So I, after that, I immediately, after my post-op, I went home and I contacted a center in Atlanta, Georgia. It's called the Center for Endometriosis Care, CEC for short. And there they have, I would say, some of the top excision specialists in the world. This is all that they do. They take care of women with endometriosis. So I put together my case. They do free case reviews. Sent it over at the beginning, or excuse me, in the middle of February. And just about a week later, I got a phone call from their head head surgeon, Dr. Sinervo. And he was like, I can help you. Like, I have done over 2,000 surgeries that involve bowel endometriosis. His recurrent rates, so somebody who has surgery with him and then needs surgery again, is less mm-hmm. than 15%. Wow. Um, he said that women report back about an 85 to 90% increase in just their, their overall well-being and decrease of pain. Mm-hmm. So that leads, you know, that leads me to here today, March. I'm 28. Um, I'm looking to be having my second lapars- laparoscopic surgery in June. So that'll be my second surgery within six months, well, specifically geared towards endometriosis. Yeah, that's amazing. I, um, there's so much to talk about here. Gonna, it's, a lot to, it's a lot to, um, a lot to for, take in. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot to take in, but it's, it's an incredible story. Yours is unique to you, but I think it's a common story of what happens in women's health with there being symptoms that are intolerable, but yet we're forced to tolerate them. Absolutely. And, you know, you have a, a journey of 15 years mm-hmm. of figuring out just a diagnosis for what is happening. Because until you get a diagnosis, you can't even begin to to treat it and to address it. Exactly. Um, and I mean, it's unbelievable. My mom had endometriosis and I believe she was just telling me about this like two weeks ago. I believe her ovaries had become attached to her uterus maybe or something. And she had to get surgery that was related to that. I remember it. It was, you know, I think I was probably 10 or so when it happened. I remember going and, you know, seeing her in the hospital. But as women, women's health goes especially for our parents' generation, mm-hmm. you didn't talk about that stuff. And it's, it's still true. true today. It's yeah. for sure still true today. But hopefully I like to think that we're starting to break the barriers of that, of being like, we are humans too. Mm-hmm. And our pain matters. Our pain, our pain does matter. Yeah. And, and so really, I've never really heard my mom's full story with that. And she's my mother and we have a great relationship and we're super close. Mm-hmm. But I, I actually don't even think, not that I didn't know this at some point in my life, but because we just never really fully talked about it, I don't even think until two weeks ago, I knew for sure that she had endometriosis. 
but it came up in conversation with something else. And she was like, yeah, when I had endo and I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, I think I was supposed to know that because I was technically around when it was like when the surgery was happening, but I was so young, I didn't know what it was. And we never talked about it in adulthood. And it's just crazy to me that these health issues are, are so huge, just don't get the attention that they need. So let's, let's kind of start from just the base level here. What is endometriosis? It is a disease where the tissue similar to the uterine lining is found outside of the uterus growing on different body parts. Okay. And so that's, so let me just quick say that there is yeah. a theory about how this starts and it's called the, the Samson method or Samson theory, something like that, where it was believed for many years. And sadly, some doctors still believe this theory that the reason why women get this is from backflow and retrograde period blood somehow not exiting your body but going back out other ways first so let's just say that that's false you know it is that has been scientifically proven time and time and time again that that is not true and it is actually beginning to research is now being done and showing that there is um, endometrial tissue being found in fetuses so this is something that you're most likely predisposed not predisposed but genetically predisposed to yeah that's super interesting. So obviously you've talked about a lot of them. Do you have all of the trademark symptoms of endometriosis or are there other things that endo can really affect in your body? Like what are some of the things that it can affect? Yep. So I, um, every woman is different. That is one of the things that makes us such a complex and, and hard disease to first off diagnose, you know, to, to even recognize that the symptoms are endometriosis, it can get confusing because there are so many symptoms. Um, some of the top ones, and I did not have all of these, but some of the top ones are uh, painful periods, severe pelvic cramping, heavy bleeding on your period, infertility, pain during sex, pain while ovulating, urination and bowel pain, constant fatigue, bleeding between periods, digestive problems, periods lasting longer than seven days and ovarian cysts. So those are some of the most common symptoms that are found in women. Um, But, you know, you'll find a woman who, for example, her only symptom is pain during sex. That's it. She doesn't have any issues during her period. She doesn't have any bleeding issues. Her only symptom is pain during sex. And then you could have someone like me, for example, my biggest um, symptoms were severe pelvic cramping during my period, mm-hmm. se- severe pain during bowel movements while in my period. Mm-hmm. While I was ovulating, I would always get, or still always get, pain on my left side that goes to my sciatic and down my left leg. Hmm. That only happens when I'm ovulating. Um, I have digestive problems. I am constantly tired, constantly. We thought it was a vitamin D issue, but even being on vitamin D, that hasn't even touched it. Uh, most of that happens around my period. Some women, it happens month long, all day, every day. And that, you know, that in itself is just what makes it so hard and so complex is because no two situations could be the same. You know, right. it, it looks different on, on each woman. That's fascinating. Why do you feel like it's so important for women to be able to get a diagnosis of endometriosis if they have it and to really get that labeled and to figure out what's going on? So... 
Well, what doctors are really trying to pre- preach right now, especially those doctors who deal in the world of endometriosis, is early diagnosis. You know, that would lead to a quick treatment. Let's look at, for example, cancer. Mm-hmm. When you find cancer, you know, there are symptoms. It's, it's something that you want to be diagnosed early because the earlier you diagnose it, the less severe it might be, the less that it may have spread, the less that it may have taken over other organs. It's the same exact thing for endometriosis. They say that this disease is very similar to cancer, except it doesn't kill you. Hmm. So for example, in my case, had a doctor when I was 15 said something about endometriosis and I, you know, a light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, oh, that's something I might have. I could have been diagnosed earlier. I could have been diagnosed, you know, 10 years earlier than what I have been. But because it went on for so long and my disease had the chance to fester for so long, it infiltrated my bowels. It spread to my bladder. You know, I'm lucky and fortunate in the sense that my you know, the surgeon told me that my tubes and my ovaries look quote unquote, perfectly fine. They look clear, but you know, I haven't tried having a baby yet. You know, Mm -hmm. these are the things where it's like women are now in their thirties trying to have babies for five plus years, not able to get pregnant, finally starting to see specialists who are realizing that the symptoms that they've had their whole lives could be related to endometriosis. And they're finding out when they're 35. Right. You know, when you're getting to that point, it's like it's tough to to be realistic about having babies at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like early diagnosis is really what what needs to be the goal right now for our women. Yeah, I think that's especially true, like you said, because we're seeing in our generation the age of having kids being pushed back. I remember, mm-hmm. when, you know, I was one of the first in because I'm your age as well. Mm-hmm. I was one of the first of my friends to have kids. Yep. Um, I had Beckett when I was 23. Mm-hmm. And like, that's like literally <laughs> nobody had a kid. Then. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, like, wow. Did you mean to have the baby? <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. And I know that back then, when I would think about the fact that nobody had a kid yet I was like well like we're still super young we're still super young we're still super young and last year in my head I remember thinking that to myself oh well, we're still su-. like my class my graduating class is still super young and then I was like wait no we're not we're 27 now this is last year we're 27 now um that's that's no longer like to what we grew up with mm-hmm. that's no longer like young too early to have kids exactly. like no 27 is like a very normal age to yeah. have kids yet almost none of my friends do mm-hmm. and I mean like literally almost none <laughs> and I'm, I'm 28 like and almost none yeah. of my friends have kids yeah yep. and it's just it's start, it's so much more normal now to really fully kind of explore yourself and submerge yourself in your individuality mm-hmm. before getting to that point. Exactly. Yep. And so we're seeing so many more people saying, oh, well, I think I'm going to start having kids around 30. I think I'm going to start having kids around 30. And that's the plan. Yep. But exactly what you're saying, what happens then when infertility kicks in? And as I told you, the podcast this week as, as of ha- us having this conversation is on infertility. Mm-hmm no one expects it to happen to them. No. no. But it's things like this, like PCOS, endometriosis, and all of these different conditions that if they were pre-diagnosed, mm-hmm. 
you would have a better game plan approaching that point yeah. of when you actually want to have children. Yep. And so that's something, you know, that my boyfriend and I have, we've talked about that quite a bit recently. Um, he's, you know, he's about to be 35. I'm going to be turning 29 soon. We've, you know, we've been together for five years. We know we want to get married. We want to have kids. We've kind of always, you know, just expected that that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But now we have to have some tough conversations leading up to my surgery where it's like, who knows what they're going to find when they get in there. I have a friend who actually, she also has endometriosis and she had surgery. And at the time I didn't realize that it was, you know, had to do with all of this. And when they went in there, one of her ovaries was completely encapsulated with, with endometriosis tissue. They wow. couldn't save it. They had to take one of her ovaries. You know, so it's like leading up to the surgery, I was kind of preparing myself for the worst. What if they get in there and they have to take my uterus because it is just a one big scar tissue of, of, of an implant, you know, an endometriosis implant, and they can't save it. You know, my mom asked me, she's like, I know this isn't something, you know, that you want to think about, but if it gets down to it and this, you know, if the surgeon asks, like, what do you want to do? And I was like, obviously I would like to keep my uterus because I want to have kids, but if it's a life or death, life or death type of situation, do what you got to do, you know, do what you got to do. Right. And, you know, I was just kept thinking, like, had I been taken seriously when I was 18 years old? in and out of the ER room for all of these different issues, I could have been diagnosed 10 years ago. I could have had this surgery 10 years ago, but no, now it's spread to my bowels. I have stage four, you know, it's, it's affecting other areas of my body outside of my reproductive system. Right. Yeah. Yep. And I actually was looking up some different um, statistics recently and 50% of women with infertility have endometriosis. Wow. 50%. Wow. That's crazy. So background, and I will check with her before I release this, that Mm -hmm. it's okay to release, but my mom um, struggled with infertility. My parents did. And um, my brother and I are both adopted. So they had, they ended up having to adopt, which obviously has turned into the biggest blessing ever because, you know, we have the the best family unit you could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still, you know, my mom is in her sixties And my whole life, even when I was a kid and certainly now as an adult with, you know, a greater perspective of of life and Mm -hmm. human nature, any time that the conversation kind of lends itself to pregnancy or having biological children or infertility or any of those things, I can still sense the pain Mm -hmm. in her. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that has like, again, with that generation, it just was so not talked about. She didn't know other people going through infertility. She didn't know other people who were going through adoption. She didn't know other people that um, were dealing with these kinds of issues. You didn't talk about it. And I think it's such, um, I think still, you know, however many years later is, you know, 40, 20, 40 years later, um, it's still just this thing that's kind of never been resolved within her. Because, you know, I I often think about, and again, thank God it wasn't addressed because, again, my parents are the best parents in the entire world. And we God God certainly meant for the four of us to become a family unit in in whatever means necessary. But I often think, see that pain in her. And I think, man, what if she would have gone through that now? 
or 20 years from now mm-hmm. when the things like endometriosis, PCOS, all these things start to become more well-known, start to be, there starts to be procedures in place for how to address it, um, for how to diagnose it, for how to, to, how to resolve it so that people can not have to struggle through that infertility because it is such a painful journey for so many reasons. Yep. Absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's amazing that, you know, it takes, it takes certain people going through it to make it into a conversation that we can have publicly mm-hmm. because there are certain personality types that are going to be going through endometriosis that aren't willing to share it. Yep. Um, but then there's people like you who say, you know what, like this Let's is graphic talk. and this yep. is a taboo subject and this is um, society, society says this is a weird thing to talk about and we are not supposed to talk about it, but we're going to talk about it because it needs Let's do to. It. Let's talk. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. that's awesome. Yep. I've, I've done the similar thing. I have had very, very, very heavy periods mm-hmm. my whole life when I've been off of birth control. Okay. Birth control made them okay, Yeah. but not being on birth control makes them horrendous. That was true before I got on, like when I had my periods before I got on birth control and then since I've been off of it, since we've been married. Mm-hmm. And um, I have now been seeing a functional medicine doctor because of that specific issue. Like my periods are... Um, not painful, thank God, mm-hmm. but the flow, literally the heaviness of the flow makes me not be able to do anything for like yeah. three days. Yeah, it affects your life. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you know, now that I run an Instagram account that is geared towards this platform of helping women, I'm like, this is part of it. This is part of it. So I've been very Bloody. open and honest about it. Like, listen, I'm going to a functional medicine doctor to figure out my cycle because it's unbearable. Absolutely. And I have like a, you know, like a 13% male following. And I'm like, if this makes you uncomfortable, check yourself because this is just part of nature. This is our part of need you. Like our women need the men to, to be okay hearing about these kinds of things. Yes. And, and that's so I'm going to talk about it openly. And I yeah, hope that it'll, it'll cause more people to, you know, when you ask for a oh. tampon, you're not like, do you, do you have a tampon? Right. <laughs> like, Hey, I need a tampon. Does anybody at yeah, this table anybody. have one? <laughs> Exactly. I have a period. You have a period. We all have periods. We're all cool I'll here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I heard. Yeah. Solid. I know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's so, so taboo and it's ridiculous. Um, so going through this journey then Maria, like what have you become more aware of or more passionate about that maybe wasn't even on your radar prior to this? Yeah. So for me, it's kind of been self advocacy, you know, I have had to be my biggest advocate. Mm-hmm. It got to the point where I wasn't able to trust my doctors anymore, you know, and it's not because they have ill intentions or they don't want to help me. It's just, we are now at a, at a turning point, especially with women's healthcare, where more is being demanded, you know, more awareness, more funding, more research, more conversations about women's health is being demanded and I'm here for it. You know, I, I have really started to find a calling within this society or within this community about, I'm going to talk about it. You know, Mm -hmm. why is it that my mother didn't know what this is? Why is it that she had to watch her teenage daughter in horrendous pain for years and years and years? And she couldn't do a single thing to help it because she didn't know what this was. You know, why did I go and see a a GI specialist who gave me my endoscopy and my colonoscopy? 
everything's fine, not a big deal. It's kind of turned into this thing where people are advocating within the endometriosis community for a different approach to diagnosis. Obviously what we're doing isn't good enough. It's not mm-hmm. working. So what they're calling for is more of like a multidisciplinary approach, different specialists being taught to know the symptoms, to know what to look for, because it affects so many different body parts. We were just at a conference earlier this month called the Endometriosis Summit. It was in New Jersey. Some of the top surgeons in the world, um, some of the top advocates, Nancy, who I told you about earlier, she was there and spoke. Physical therapists who specifically deal with women with pelvic pain. Mm. There was a urologist there. And he said when he graduated from, I can't remember what college it was, but it was in 2010. He was obviously already on the track for, for being a urologist. There within the curriculum, he said that there was nothing about endometriosis. We're talking medical school. Wow. This isn't business school. This isn't somebody going, you know, and getting a math degree. This is somebody who is going into a doctor field, is being taught to help people, and they're not teaching about something that affects one in 10 women. Yeah. Literally, it is said right now that there are 176 million women worldwide who suffer from endometriosis. That equates to about one in 10 women. And you're telling me that somebody who went to to medical school in 2010 was not taught about this. That's insane. That's wild. And the reason why he was even at the the convention is because he started to see a trend. Women would come into his office and be like, I've had three UTIs every single month for the past two years, you know, and he would take them under and he would start to do tests and whatnot. None of these tests came back positive for UTIs. Mm. started getting him thinking about what could be the issue here. A lot of women, actually a very high percentage of women on their ureters, endometriosis can be found. And so if something as serious as that, that connects to very big systems, you know, your endocrine system, if something like endometriosis starts to infiltrate that, that could lead to kidney failure. You know, women are coming in with, with painful urination. And he is a doctor that is now stepping outside of his own specialty and realizing that something needs to be done because doctors such in, you know, in his, his specialty, GI doctors, all these different specialists, they need to start knowing the symptoms because yeah. they're having patients brought across their, across their desk that they could help diagnose, you know, so there needs to be a multidisciplinary approach to this. Doctors have to start working together in different specialties and realize that it's it's not just a OB issue, it's not just a GI issue, it's it's a whole body issue. This can affect multiple different organs, multiple different functions. And our doctors need to be trained on how to, you know, to diagnose it, how to see that that's happening. Yeah, that is crazy. It reminds me of so I'm going to guess you've read this book, although I don't know. Did you read the book Woman Code? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. Ooh. Woman Code by um <laughs> I believe her name is Alyssa Vitti. Okay. I always need to guess that. It's sitting on my bookshelf right over there. I could go look. But um, so she talks all about women's health and women's hormone health. Yep. And she owns a practice called Flow, which I think is actually up in New York. Okay. It is Flow Living 
hormone center. Anyway, so she talks about um, hormone health. And when I read that book, again, I was reading it mainly for my cycle, but I believe she was diagnosed with endometriosis. I know for a fact she was diagnosed by PCOS mm-hmm. uh, or with PCOS. And at the time of her diagnosis, I think it was like her freshman year in college or something. She, I think she was at John, John Hopkins, like pre-med, all these things. And um, I hope this is all true. I read the book a little while ago. <laughs> and, um, but the diagnosis and, and the prognosis of the doctors was like, well, so you're probably going to be infertile. And um, anyways, yep, on your way. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, what the heck? So she actually was ended up figuring out how to kind of cure her own PCOS and cure her own um, symptoms with the with the cysts and all the things through different hormone, like natural hormone regulation yeah. through diet and all the different things. And her book, which is called Woman, Woman Code, I think she has several, but that's the one that I read, talks about all the different things that our hormones as women affect. It's wild. And like, yes. Wild. And I can't tell you, I was going through the list and I didn't have experience with, you know, many things on the list. I certainly had a experience with a handful of things, but it was a really long, long mm-hmm. list of things that when our hormones are imbalanced, it causes this whole mm-hmm. list of things to go wrong in our body. And for different women, it's different things on that list, but you know, those are the symptoms of hormone imbalance. And my takeaway going through this list was like, oh my gosh, all of these things are things that as women, we are just told, just like you said, that we were just dealt yep. a bad hand mm-hmm. and that was the hand we were dealt yep. within womanhood. And like, right. oh, that's just, that's just something that you were dealt. So you have to deal with it. None of it was, it's, it's never been taught to me that that's with hormone imbalance. Yep. It's never, ever been taught to me that like, that is a sign that something is wrong. Mm-hmm. It's always and just that been it can like, be fixed. <laughs> and that it can be fixed. Right, right. It's always just been like, well, yep, that's just one of the things that can happen in womanhood and you have it. Mm-hmm. Period. And that's where gender bias within the medical community really comes into play. You know, and people don't want to admit that that's a thing, but it is a thing. Right. I think it's probably likely a thing, not because of any of the, the, the practitioners today, mm-hmm. but you know, you look back 40 years ago and hundred percent of doctors were male. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm not saying that it's like the doctors that are not sexist yeah. today's fault, but right. if you look at where our medical field has come from, it's come from a practice of being all male. So when a woman walks in, nah. <laughs> I'm so not actually, saying one so thing or another, a, but. <laughs> right. So one of the women that spoke at the conference, um, she's created a, a platform called Endo What. And, you know, if anyone's interested in looking into that, it's, it's endowhat.org. Um, but her name is Shannon. And she did a TED Talk uh, a couple years back. She's, uh, she's an endo warrior herself you know, went through the ringer exactly as I said, took many, many years for the diagnosis, failed surgeries, had to find more specialists, this, this, and that. So she's been very involved with just trying to change the narrative, like trying to change the conversation around this, more awareness, more funding. Um, So during her TED talk, she actually brought up a couple different, different points. And I don't remember the exact amount of time that it was it was I I know that there, it was a pretty much a 20 minute disparity between the time that men get admitted into the ER and are seen versus the time that women are 
admitted oh, into the ER and seen. Wow. 20 minute disparity. That's 20 minutes. super interesting. And you know, and that's not something where people are walking in and being like, woman, you're going to wait. Like, well, I'm not going to help you. I'm going to help this man first. That's not how, you know, that's not what we're trying to get at. That's, that's not how it works. Can I, I wonder, hmm? I, I wonder if part of it is that men are more likely to go up and say, Hey, I've been here for 20 minutes. When, like, when's my time where women are just going to sit there patiently going, Oh, I've been exactly. here for 20 we're minutes, but we're talked to, to wait our time. Yes. Yeah, yes. there was one time where I was admitted to the ER. It was so busy that I was laying on a bed in a hallway, literally appreciating wow. pain, throwing up. My parents were with me, and it took my dad. He had to scream. He had to literally raise his voice and yell at a nurse and being like, she needs some kind of pain med. She is on this table in the middle of your hallway. Right. So much pain. Why hasn't she been helped yet? Why has nobody seen her yet? And it took my dad getting very upset for somebody to come over and, and give me some kind of drugs to help my pain. Yeah. You know, so it's like those kinds of things. These studies are starting to show that there are there's disparities between men and women getting equal health care. You know, yeah. and again, it's I don't think it's anybody being outwardly purposeful about this. You know, nobody is going, especially doctors, you know, they they take an oath. They want to help people. They're knowledgeable. They do what they do because they want to help the world. Right. Nobody's going into the ER and being like, I'm purposely going to make this woman wait 20 more minutes. (laughs) No, we know that's not happening. But what gives? Why is it that there's statistics that are being shown? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. I um, I kind of told you this before we started recording, but Mm -hmm. I've been working in this space now with women and for women for, I don't know, maybe six months or so. And Mm -hmm it's kind of taken some turns that I didn't go in expecting mm-hmm. in that I, you know, I came in here to talk about really being able to thrive in all of your roles mm-hmm. while navigating motherhood. Mm-hmm. That was my big thing because so many women lose themselves in it, but unexpectedly through this and through being someone who, who talks to so many women going through so many different stories and, and, um, just kind of being in this world of of womenhood and what does that look like and what does that what does that mean the gap in our health system for women and I don't even mean hospitals and doctors mm-hmm. I mean middle school health class mm-hmm. high school health class the college age girls who are going to be going off and getting married and having kids in the next decade this group this like youthful group of women is so underserved when it comes to health and and their bodies and it's just it's mind blowing and it's almost become like this this tangent of passion of mine that falls right into this same mm-hmm. umbrella that I'm pursuing but it's definitely made me think like as I move forward in this business how can we help bridge that gap because similarly to you going through endometriosis we had a miscarriage in our first pregnancy and I was literally in the ER miscarrying, Googling on my phone, what do I need to expect in a miscarriage? That is the wrong time to learn about miscarriage. You should have already been knowledgeable about that. That's something that our healthcare system, our education system, middle school, high school, you know, it's a tough thing to have to go through. You should be prepared. You know, yes. our, our society needs to prepare our women better to for something like that. 
And it's just, there are, it's failing us. The healthcare system's failing us. The education system's failing us. How can we do better? Yeah. And I, I talked to my husband about this and I was like, you know, when we're in, in middle school health class, the whole conversation is around what your period is. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is what a period is. This is what a tampon is. This is, you know, this is what a pad is. You can now and, get pregnant. Yeah. And you can now get pregnant. Okay. Off you go. Mm-hmm. And then you get to high school and it's all about, uh, don't have sex. Don't have sex. Watch this childbirth don't video that you don't have sex because you're going to be scarred for life yes. if you watch this. It's, you can get pregnant if you have sex. You can get an STD if you have sex. All right, off you go. Good luck. There's nothing in place that tells us about our bodies. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in place that tells us um, what happens and what to expect when you do actually get pregnant. There's nothing in place to educate us on anything, any women's hormone issues. Um, There's nothing in place to help us with actual um, women diagnosed diseases like endometriosis, PCOS, Mm -hmm. any of these things. I mean, it's, it's, it's honestly mind blowing. I was talking to um, some friends of mine the other day. (laughs) I think I said this on the last episode, but it's funny and it's true. And it's a very good representation of the lack of women's education Mm-hmm. Um, with women's health is that I teach my kids proper body parts. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, my, my four, my four year old son, when he was two asking about his newborn baby sister's body parts, not being the same as his. Mm-hmm. And my first reaction was like, well, no, she doesn't have a penis. She has a vagina. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, actually what you're pointing to right now is not her vagina. It's her vulva. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Most adults don't even know that. Don't even know what a vulva <laughs> is. Vagina is literally the canal, like that's inside of you. That's what your vagina is, right? Yeah. No, people don't realize that. Yeah. People don't even know what a vulva is, and I'm like, how? How? We're these are our bodies. We don't even know what it, what the parts are called. Yep. Let alone what can go wrong. Exactly. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And so I'm I'm right there with you. The more I the more I know the more I'm like, wow, something needs to change. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Exactly. It's absolutely crazy. So you are looking for surgery in June or July. Is that right? Yep. So yep. Down in Atlanta. Yep. Okay. And what, I mean, what's the hope beyond that? Like what's the, what's the hope for endometriosis post-surgery? So endometriosis, unfortunately, it's never something that goes away. So a woman with endometriosis has it for her whole life. Um, You know, my hope for this surgery is to be pain-free. When I had my last surgery in January, I was told that I could expect to have six months of pain-free with the work that he did. But, you know, nobody talks about that it takes two to three months for your body to heal from this kind of surgery. Nobody talks about how for the first two to three cycles, it's going to be worse than what it was before. So Mm. for the past two to three months, my periods have been horrendous. Granted, they were horrendous beforehand, but they've been even worse to the Mm -hmm. point where the other night, literally I was up in the middle of the night, couldn't stand up straight. My boyfriend was so worried, you know, what can I do? Nothing. You can't do anything, unfortunately. My body is healing. You know, this is what's happening. Hopefully this isn't going to continue to happen. You know, my surgeon did work and he said that I was going to have six months of pain-free. I'm now going, it's now March 10th. I had my surgery January 3rd. I'm still in pain on my period. Mm -hmm. 
so hopefully, you know, when I get this next surgery, the goal is that he properly excises all of the endometriosis that he finds, you know, and then quickly let's touch base on the importance of excision too. I think yeah. I did a good enough job when we touch base on it earlier, but the whole reason that excision is so important is because it gets in there. And so endometriosis tissue, it implants itself onto areas of your body. So let's just take my, my bladder, for example, endometriosis tissue has found itself to my bladder. It has implanted on it and it has, you know, let's it's grown roots. Let's, you know, that that's the best way to think about it. Yeah. It's gone in there deep. It's in there deep. It's not just on the surface. It's in there. So the best way to remove that is to get in there and to cut it out, to get it all out. And the main reason why that is so important is because, and this is wild, but endometriosis creates its own estrogen supply. So as I touched on previously, endometriosis is an estrogen fed disease. Right. Where endometriosis is found, it is creating its own estrogen supply. So it's feeding itself. It's feeding itself. So this is another crazy statistic that of like the 600,000-ish hysterectomies done each year, about half of those are done because of endometriosis. And this is the worst part. The majority of them are unwarranted because a hysterectomy does not cure endometriosis. As I just said, Wherever that endometriosis is found, it's creating its own estrogen supply. So if you get rid of the uterus, the you know the fallopian tubes, your ovaries, and thinking that oh no more estrogen is being put into the body, the disease is going to die off on its own because it's going to starve. That's false. That's false. So that is why it is so important that the golden standard of care for endometriosis needs to be excision surgery. That is the only thing hmm. that is going to help women, you know, especially in the in the sense of pain. You know, these drugs that everybody's prescribing, the only thing that those are doing are masking some of the symptoms, you know, right. but w- think about it again in the sense of cancer. If somebody's diagnosed with cancer, do you think that they're just going to be given a pill that's going to be like, this is going to take care of the symptoms, but it's not really going to help the actual problem. We're still going to let that problem fester. Right, right, right. No, because that person would die. Why is it any different for a disease that doesn't kill somebody? Why would you leave the root of the problem there and just mask the symptom? It's a Band-Aid. You are giving these women a Band-Aid and saying, this is going to help all the pain that you're going through. But guess what? The disease is still in there. Oh, it's fascinating. So my mom underwent a hysterectomy. And that's really fascinating that that's not even really proven to... It's not solve the problem and so a hysterectomy there is another there's another aspect they do not coincide but sometimes you can have a woman with endometriosis and also something called adenomyosis okay that is where so i'm not as well versed on this but i know that that has to do specifically with the uterus the disease contained within the uterus in that case yes it is recommended and proven that a hysterectomy will help Right, because it will remove the whole thing that everything's attached to. Yeah. But that's the thing is, statistics are showing that a very small percentage of women only have endometriosis within their uterus. Hmm. It's outside, and that's called extragenital endometriosis. So, like, I have 
because it is on my bowels, it is on my cervix, it is on my uterus, and it's on my bladder. So if you just take my uterus out of the equation, it's still there and it's feeding off of itself. It's going through, it's wild. It goes through its own cycle. Like yeah. it's just, just as if you were to like shed your uterine lining, that doesn't actually happen on the implants, but it, the genetic like, you know, composition of it makes it think that it can do that. Right. And so that's where women said like you have scar tissue involved in this because your body keeps going through these cycles of something that's not supposed to be happening. Right. On your uterus, you know, or Do on you your know, cervix. Obviously, like people, like if your only symptom that you experience is pain during sex, you're probably not going to find out that anything's even wrong until later on. Yep. Do you know, I know you said that there um, is some evidence that endometriosis might be something that, that you have since birth. Mm-hmm. Do you know, is it, does it start to really grow once you start your period? Is that kind of like when it really starts to fester and, and Exactly. And yep. spread. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Whether they, or not you have symptoms at that point, because again, if you're not having sex at 12, sure, exactly. um, then yep. you might not know, but that's yep. kind of when it's, it's yeah. catapulted. Yeah. So um, it is statistically showing that you are seven times more likely to have endometriosis if a woman in your family has it. So grandma, aunt, sister, you're right. seven times more likely to have it yourself. But yes, you're right in saying that. There's actually a, a pretty big issue right now with trying to understand how to help women, excuse me, not even women, girls, who are showing symptoms of endometriosis at 15, 16, 17. You know, there's these women, girls, I keep saying women, but they're not women yet, you know, they're, they're still yeah. girls, um, going to specialists and being like, these are my symptoms. I think I have endometriosis. The doctors agree, but... Endometriosis, it goes through its own stage or its own like growth stage. You know, you're not going to want to do surgery on a girl who's 15 because the endometriosis is not matured yet. Hmm. That makes sense. Interesting. So does that mean that you wouldn't be able to identify all of it possibly and then you wouldn't be able to extract all of it? Exactly. And so, you know, uh, one of the big things about endometriosis specialists is that they are trained to find the most minute tiny little strand little tissue pocket you know in all different areas they can find it they can see it with their eye but even in some cases if you know if a girl is young enough and the endometriosis hasn't really matured quite yet mm-hmm. hasn't been you know brought for lack of better terms like brought to the surface yet or you know showing itself to the naked eye it could very well be missed yeah, that's really interesting. It goes back to that iceberg image exactly. that you had. Right, right. If it, if it hasn't, if it's, if it's it underneath, starts, but it's... Well, so it usually goes into it. It usually infiltrates. Okay. It doesn't start from, like, the inside and go out. It's it's okay. typically an implant or a lesion that is visual, and it starts to, okay. to get right in there. That's crazy. Yeah, wow. I know. Yeah, so that's I mean, kind of it, what they're struggling is how you know we we know this information we know that we need to catch it early but how do we help these girls when having surgery at 15 is probably not in their best interest right yeah, yeah that is interesting it may, it just makes me realize how undertaught this is how the, the knowledge of this is just not out there for girls to even get yeah. because 
I'm someone who's in this realm. I'm someone who has a mom who has had endometriosis. I'm someone with friends that have endometriosis, that have PCOS, that have these different things. And honestly, walking into this conversation today, basically all I knew was that endometriosis can um, be tied to infertility. Yep. That's it. That's literally, I'm not joking, Maria. That's literally what I knew going into this. I was like, well, I'm interested to hear what she says that like endometriosis can all like affect and cause because as far as I know, it's just infertility. And even on that point, I know that you can have it and not be infertile. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So right. like, that's not even, that's not even like that good of a point. No, right. <laughs> I know it's right. It's, it really is such a complex disease and it's so misunderstood and you know, again, how do, how do we do better for like, let's just talk about funding, for example, federal funding. I just recently shared something on my Facebook um, about, it was like a breakdown of common illnesses, how many people it affects, the federal funding that it got, and then what it equates to per person. Mm-hmm. So let me just give you a couple examples. I have the chart up right here. Crohn's disease. It affects one in 204 people. So for every 204 people, you'll have one person. There was $66 million in federal funding. This is for 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, so that breaks down to $41 per person affected. Okay. Adult liver disease, one in 66 people are affected. $661 million federal dollars were allocated for this. That equates to about $170 per person. Okay. Diabetes. Everybody has heard of diabetes. Mm-hmm. That affects one in 11 people. And that got, I don't even know if I'm going to say this number right, close to $1.2 billion of federal funding. Okay. Equating to about $38 per person. Endometriosis affects one in 10 women. It got $10 million of federal funding, equating to 64 cents per person affected. Well, what gives, you know, the Ted talk that I was telling you earlier, it's Mm -hmm. perfectly named the most common disease you've never heard of. This is true. This disease affects so many women and yet nobody really knows what it is. That's crazy. It really, I mean, it really is mind blowing. It's Mm -hmm. so mind blowing. And for that, for that exact reason, that's why I'm so, so thankful that you asked to come on and that you would you would come on here and share your story and give people some insight. Because I guarantee there's going to be some women listening to this that go, huh, wow. that I wonder if mm-hmm. I uh, need to go check out and see if I have endometriosis. Exactly. Because like you said, so often we are just taught to just write off our symptoms as normal. And they're not, if you don't feel a hundred percent, if you don't feel great, if your body doesn't feel like it's working properly, it's cause it's not, and something needs to be addressed, but it's a matter of finding the right professionals who are educated in the right things to be able to diagnose it, which is mm-hmm. just, which is just nuts. So and for this disease specifically, it's like the perfect storm of, of kind of like striking out, you know, it's first off, it's dealing with women. So the gender bias, right. You know, there's lack of awareness. There's doctors who are uninformed slash just not educated well enough on the issue, which leads to inadequate care. Mm -hmm. 
And then you also throw into the whole play about our society, unfortunately, our healthcare system is for profit, you know, so we have big pharma with their hands and everything, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, and their influence is, is not in, it's not in our best interest. That's an issue. Um, and so, you know, another thing that you had kind of prompted me, I think on our, on our discussion before this about, you know, who this affects and why, why it affects them. And so I kind of made just like a quick list about some things that this can affect in a woman's life. Yeah. Studies are showing that it can cause up to 11 hours of lost productivity each week. It is putting a burden on society because $119 billion is lost in wages, productivity, and medical costs each year because of this disease. Wow. So if you think about it, you know, like a woman, I've, especially when I was at my desk job, there were days where I I had to go to work. I had to. And as I explained, one of my biggest symptoms was feeling like a knife was being stabbed up my butt. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine being on a conference call with somebody who my sales were like $200,000 a month with them and trying to close a bigger deal. And I feel like a knife is being stabbed up my butt for 30 seconds. And I still have to try to compose myself in a professional manner. Right. Like that, that's, you know, that's just, people can't even imagine it. You know, no. like men can't no. even imagine what that must be like. Right. So the high medical costs, let's think about how I was saying all of the ER visits that I had to go to all of the unnecessary tests that my parents had to pay for because someone's like, oh, it's a GI issue. Oh, let's give her a colonoscopy. Let's give her an endoscopy. Sure, a barium follow-through will show us what the insides look like and we'll be able to see right. how many ultrasounds I had, an internal ultrasound, going back and forth to the doctor. Like, my, thank God my parents had good healthcare. Right. Thank God. You know, if, I, if we didn't have good insurance, I can only imagine. For sure. So days off of work. You know, women are missing days of work. Women are missing social events. That's one of the biggest things is that they're saying in in regards to, do you have pain during your period to the point where it affects your daily life? You know, again, we're not talking about like, I'm feeling tired, I need to lay down. We're talking about, do you choose to not go to the family lake house for the weekend because you have your period and you don't? Yes. This is something that I did not really understand until... Right. Until after I had cadence and my periods got so unbearably yeah. heavy. You is that, like literally if I, the hard thing is that I can't perfectly predict what three days those are going to fall on. I can right. have like a general sense, but it's sure. not perfect. And so like, basically if I get my period, I know that the next three days mm-hmm. are going to be miserable. Mm-hmm. And if I have like something I need to go do in those next three days, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to physically get through this act normal when every time I move I feel like mm-hmm. it's going to be catastrophic mm-hmm. in public. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Why well, so it's true. And also not to mention like because you said like girls are being affected by, affected by this too. School's being missed. I mean you miss school from it. Yes. Yep. Sports. Yeah. You know, it's like when you know I I was I loved being competitive, but it was to the point where how am I supposed to go out and give my all you know, and do what I need to do to be part of a team if I physically cannot even stand up straight, if I feel like I just have to be in the fetal position. My mom used to buy bulk packs of the little heating pads that you would that you could stick onto your clothes so I could get through a school day. That's not normal. Right. Why, why was I led to believe that that was normal? That is anything but normal. Mm-hmm. So a few more issues, you know, and, and how it affects you, um, your self-confidence, you know, your self-doubt. 
the gaslighting, the gaslighting of that I went through of basically, you know, it was under people were undermining my pain. I was being told, like, sure, you're in pain, but I, but nothing's showing up on tests. So, you know, the pain, whatever the pain is, the pain, you know, women are telling women are being told that they're overreacting, that they're hypochondriacs. I mean, it's, it hasn't changed. It's been like that forever, you know, right. that we're wusses, that we don't have high pain tolerances. I was just going to say that, probably just like wondering, mm, her pain tolerance just probably isn't yeah, that high. Right. Yeah. Well, let's, let's spin that. And how about I have a super high pain tolerance because I was able to function right. while going through this. You know, I so bet, that did it, does it also affect, issues and, does it yeah. also affect, obviously you've been with your boyfriend for a long time and mm-hmm. I met him, he's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Does it also affect the early stages of that relationship though? Cause I can imagine it'd be, it would be very hard to be like, so when I get my period, mm-hmm. like we're not supposed to talk about this kind of mm-hmm. stuff with men. Oh, me. Yep. That's enough. Yeah. So I'm glad that you brought that up because another point I was going to talk on was just like intimacy issues too, you know, so I'll, I'll get to that. But as you were saying, yes, that wasn't something I was open with right away. Like, like how do you tell a, a guy that you just started dating? Like, Oh, by the way, when I'm on my period, I get cramps up my butt that feel like I'm being stabbed. And then I, you know, have to go to the bathroom like four times a day, just so you know, like, but <laughs> yeah, let's go out and have fun and let's, you know, let's date. Like, yeah. No, that's something that I've, you know, I didn't feel comfortable saying something like that. Thank God he is, you know, he has been so wonderful and so supportive through all of this has never once questioned my pain, told me it was in my head. You know, he never did that. Right, He's right. been through it every step of the way. And as I said, my, you know, my GI issues kind of started like right when we started dating right around then 24. Oh, man. So he's seen it progress. He understood, but of course he didn't know about it. So about under endometriosis. So he had, he had no idea that it actually was a medical issue, but you know, a lot of women struggle with intimacy for a lot of women pain with sex. You know, I'm very fortunate. That's not one of my symptoms, mm-hmm. but I have talked to women and it's like, even inserting a tampon is painful for them. So now imagine the effect that that, that would have on a relationship. Yeah. If you can find, be lucky enough to find yourself a guy who's understanding of something like that, that still, still is an issue because, you know, you're lacking such an important part of a relationship. Right. Well, I, and I can imagine that it would cause, women already have a worthiness complex mm-hmm. of feeling like they're not worthy of everything that they're actually worthy of. Mm-hmm which obviously moves its way into intimacy, feeling like, you know, obviously men experience pleasure much easier than women do. Yeah. And so like it can easily become, well, we don't need to take the time to worry about my pleasure, to figure yeah. out my pleasure or do all those things. <laughs> that That's all real in everyone's relationship, I yeah. feel like. Absolutely. At a certain point. But then you add in the fact that it's actually painful mm-hmm. to have sex and it's like, I can't imagine stripping more of what should be super pleasurable and what should be um, great for the women that are experiencing it and all of a sudden making it something that's even more of a task and even more of an obligation and even more of a, a just, oh, just such a toxic relationship mm-hmm. with, with sex and what it's supposed In to general. be. general. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That would be, that would be super difficult for sure. And then, and then you add in the possible reproductive issues. Mm-hmm. Oh, and so that all of that stress is, is on women, you know, they, they, they have to be this ideal woman, but you know, 
you're having intimacy issues and you're having reproductive issues, it's like, well, okay, great. Why, why is a guy going to want to marry me? You know, mm-hmm. what, what else do I have to offer? Right. And that's one thing at the convention that I went to, there were some very brave women who stood up and kind of shared some of their, their thoughts and their experiences. And there was this one woman who said that she, because the way that her endometriosis affects her, she has yet to be able to have penetrative sex with her fiance. And she's like, and she, you know, she went into details about how, you know, that it feels like a, a piece of their relationship is missing because they're not able to experience each other in such a, a such a intimate way. Right. Um, you know, and there's another woman on, on Instagram, she has this pretty big platform and she's very honest about things. Cause she's like, these things need to be spoken about. She was honest the other day and said that she had an orgasm the night before and she had been in, was now in pain the entire day she has been in pain. And that's how it affects her. So imagine wanting to, you know, experience something that's very pleasurable. But when you do, you now have to spend the next few days in pain because that's how it affects your body. That is, that's that crazy. is the most unfair thing I can ever imagine. Right. But women are doing it, you know, like, because it's normal. You want to do that. You want to, that to be a part of your life, especially if you're in a relationship. That's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to wrap my head. I know, I know. Right. And people, really people, people don't think about it, it affecting something like that. You know, mm-hmm. they're like, again, oh, it's just bad periods. Mm-hmm. It's so much more than just a bad period. And the world needs to know. The world needs to know. Yeah, that's, not, that's unbelievable. Do you know what the name of the Instagram account is that those mm-hmm. platforms are on? So there's a few that I follow. Yeah, hit, him, hit me with them because yeah. I feel like they're going to be really good resources for people. Yeah. So one that I really like is called Endogram. Okay. And she's based out of Australia. She's has really cool graphics um, that artists make for her. And then she kind of just gives really good informational captions that go along with them. Cool. And then there's me, myself, and endometriosis, again, in Australia. And she actually saw the surgeon that I'm going to be seeing. She traveled from Australia to Atlanta to have surgery. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. She's very open again. And then the other one, can't find that one, but there's Endo's Girl blog, Endo What. I brought up that earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Resource. Um, The resource on Facebook that women should, should... start following if they think that they might have symptoms of endometriosis is Nancy's Nook. As I said, that is kind of like a self-educational platform. She's pretty strict. She's like, I don't want you coming on here to bitch. I don't want you telling us your life story. You know, we're here to teach. She has lesson plans up there. Like she has a whole very, very strict kind of set of rules. Guidelines. Exactly. But it's for a reason. It's because you're there to learn and from there, you can make an informed decision on how best to treat your, your issues. That's um, awesome. Yeah. But so, yeah, so those are some of my favorite resources. Um, okay, cool. Yeah. Well, when we, when we link up for the release of this, I'll have you send me the links to all the things and we'll find the one that you were talking about too, that yes. you couldn't find right now, but I'll, I'll attach them all to yeah. the show notes. And that way, when people are listening to the podcast, they can go right to our show notes and find all of those resources and follow them. And um, we'll make it super easy for them to get connected. But that is awesome. That 
I honestly, Maria, I can't say thank you enough. I know, I know how much our listeners are going to be educated on this because I was super educated on this by you. So looking to do, I'm just really looking to just, I feel it's my duty as a woman with endometriosis is just to do my small part in just starting to spread awareness, whether it be in my own circles, in the Rochester community with people who exactly as you were saying, the platform that you have, women are mm-hmm. listening. If I can help one woman who listens to your podcast, that's, you know, I'll feel fulfilled. I'll feel like I helped do a little bit of, of my part in making this very, very, very large issue become more understandable for people. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much. And, um, I, I certainly plan to stay very tuned into your journey and we'll be checking in this summer and seeing how you're doing. If you happen to go through Nashville, come say, Hey, um, <laughs> you'll probably fly into Atlanta, but if you happen to not fly into Atlanta and want to drive, you can yeah. stop by. But, um, again, thank you a ton for reaching out and I, I sincerely appreciate it big time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet.